he's going to have some time at the end for uh, some questions and discussion. Yeah. Uh, Alan, okay. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, Terry has me come periodically and do his class that he teaches. And I understand that what he does is he has people come in and fill in for him. So it's a really great way to teach. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You want to add variety. So uh, I, I was um, teaching on some of this material on Friday. And I, for the last several years, when spring hits, uh, it all lands on my eyes and in my sinuses. And I just sat there and blew my nose the entire day. And I, <laughs> Now, I told these people, you're going to remember this conference as the one where the guy blew his nose all day. But for some reason, it's better here today. So it must be this, your spiritual condition, uh, you know, that, that, that you're, you're better off. Um, yeah, I want to talk about, um, we, call, we call these people a lot of things. Now, there, there's a lot of names that we use for them, like difficult people, uh, jerks, uh, creeps, uh, crazy makers. I mean, because they, they really do make you feel crazy. Uh, Terry mentioned uh, personality disorders. That's more of a clinical term in our field that we use to describe these people. But a lot of times we don't use nice names to describe them. Uh, I don't know if you've ever noticed how many of the names that we use for people, a lot of times they're, they're hybrid words where you combine a body part and a cuss word. <laughs> and you, you put those two things together. Those are the terms that we use to describe them. I won't go through those. This is a Sunday school class. So, you know, we, we'll, but you know the ones that I'm talking about. Um, the, the term that I've chosen to use um, for this group today is uh, wolves and sheep's clothing because a lot of times they, they look one way, but they really are a different way. And uh, I don't know if any of you are familiar with the work, a book by Scott Peck. You remember, remember him? He wrote a, kind of a seminal work back in 1980 called The Road Less Traveled. Well, two years later, he wrote a book called The People of the Lie. And, and what he's talking about in that group is this this population and interestingly even though he was a psychiatrist by training uh, the term that he used to describe these people was evil and, and he explains that he says the reason I use that term is because the essence of evil is something looks good on the surface but it's rotten underneath so the the appearance betrays the reality so in our circles a lot of times the term we use is wolves and sheep's clothing so they look they look, they look fine, they look like sheep, but what you find out underneath is something uh, very different. So uh, I want to, like you said, I've only got 40 minutes. We could really spend uh, the entire day on this subject and still not cover everything uh, because this is a really, um, it's got a lot of par moving parts to the subject. So I want to give us just kind of a, of a brief overview of how to kind of understand uh, some of these people and what, what you do to deal with them. Uh, you know, there's a book on the market right now called When Strangling Isn't an Option. <laughs> so you'd like to kill them, but you probably shouldn't. So what do you do with them if you can't kill them? So uh, we'll touch on that today. But uh, let, let, me, let me show you something. This is, um, this is one way to kind of get some handles on this. There, there is uh, something wrong with all of us. You know, now, now from a... A biblical standpoint, what we could certain, certainly say is, you know, we're, we're all sinners and we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we understand that. Uh, even somebody in the secular world like Immanuel Kant, he was a philosopher, and this, this is the way he put it. He said, we're all cut from the crooked timber of humanity. And I really like that because no matter how you slice it, you're going to come up with some flaws and some glitches and foibles and some weaknesses, some immaturities. 
Now, when people get in close to each other, that's when their, uh, their flaws start to become manifested. Um, I, I, I tell people sometimes, if you want to find out where you're flawed, get married. <laughs> you know, because once you get married in that close contact with other people, you're going to start to find out where your, your weaknesses and your flaws show up. Now, when people get in close to each other, what's required in order to make that relationship function well is they're going to have to uh, resolve the problems that result from their flaws coming into contact with each other. And there are certain uh, qualities, this is kind of the way I put this together, other people have said similar things, but uh, there are certain things that people need to do or qualities that they need to have in order to be reasonable. And what I'm going to show you, these are uh, qualities that I think people make people reason-able. What is it that makes you able to be reasonable with people? Now, all of these things have to do with something with how we handle our own personal flaws. Now, now the first one of these things that's needed is humility. Now, let me tell you what humility does not mean. It doesn't mean you're right, I'm wrong. What humility means is you could be right, I could be wrong, let's talk. So it's a position that says, uh, I'm willing to have a conversation with you, and I'm willing to even entertain the, the possibility that might, I might be off about something. So um, that's, one, that's one of those things that's needed to be, um, to, to be reasonable. And by the way, I refer to all these things in, in another place. I refer to them as reason muscles. And the reason I use that verbiage is I, I think everybody's got the qualities. But some people have never used these qualities, and so they're like muscles that are atrophied. So for all practical purposes, you don't have the muscle. You don't have the ability. But that's the first one that's needed. It's a stance that says, I could be wrong, you could be right, so let's talk. And you're willing to engage in the, in the exploration of possibilities. The second thing that's needed is awareness. Now what that means is, uh, I see where I'm wrong. Now, people, when people lack this quality, they don't see that. And uh, a lot of times what's uh, frustrating is they don't see the things that everybody else sees. And they don't see their, their uh, negatives. Did anybody in here ever watch uh, The Office? You know, you know the, the Office is an old show now, you know, but when it first, really good in the first few seasons, and it kind of went down, downhill in my opinion. But um, the, the main character in that show, Michael Scott, um, he was the quintessential uh, narcissist. And, and one of the running sub-themes in that show was that other people saw Michael's negatives. He didn't see them. He was completely oblivious to them. In fact, on the pilot episode, uh, Michael's talking to an, an interviewer in his office. And he says, uh, these people that work here in my branch, they consider themselves to be some of the luckiest people on the planet to work in an office that's run by somebody like me. In fact, in fact, he says, let me show you something. So he holds up this cup, and the cup says, world's greatest boss. And he says, I mean, that says it all right there, doesn't it? Well, then you find out he bought that cup for himself. It's Spencer Gifts, but uh, he's convinced himself that's how people out, out there see him, just com completely unself-aware. So uh, one of the things that we need in order to make relationships work well is you have to have self-awareness. You have to see where your flaws are and recognize them. Otherwise, you can't do anything about them. Now, the, the next thing is responsibility. And what that means is it bothers me when I'm wrong. Um, 
Do you know what's supposed to happen to you and me when we observe a personal flaw? You know, you know what's supposed to happen to us? That observation is supposed to elicit in us a cringe reaction. You see the flaw and you go, ugh, that's not good. And it's that cringe reaction that provides you with some intrinsic motivation to try to change that quality. Now, sometimes people lack that and they don't see it. I'll, we'll come back to that in just a minute, but it's very important to make relationships work well to be able to uh, be bothered by the things that are wrong with you. Not that you grovel, that's not what we're talking about, but it should catch your attention and, and bother you. That, that provides you with the motivation to change it. Uh, the next thing is empathy, and what that means is it bothers me if something about me has an adverse effect on you. And that, that also becomes part of my change motivation. I don't want to hurt you. And so the, the empathy is a good thing in relationships because it motivates me to make sure that I do something to rein in <coughs> ways that I might hurt you by my, by my flaws. The last one is um, it's reliability. And this is uh, the, the stance here is when I'm wrong, I'll change. I'll do something about that. Now, some people can have awareness, but they don't ever change anything. And, and so nothing, everything stays the same. Now, these are the qualities uh, that people need in order to be reasonable or reasonable. In order to be able to resolve conflicts in a relationship, you've got to have those qualities. So these are muscles that are needed. Um, now, if you can do that, if you can solve the, the problems that are inevitably, inevitably going to come about in close relationships, uh, then it has these four effects on you. Now, one is uh, problems can actually be resolved and laid to rest. You can actually um, um, settle things. You can resolve differences. Uh, it feels warm. Now, uh, what happens in problem solving in relationships, it actually creates warmth. Um, go like this. You don't have to do this, but I mean, how, how do your hands feel after you do that? They feel warmer, don't they? Well, when you get into close relationships and there's friction that occurs, if it's the right kind of friction, it actually warms up the relationship. It makes you feel warmer toward each other. Conversely, if you ever run into people that don't feel warm, it's probably because they've had the wrong kind of friction. They haven't been resolving things. Um, relationships get closer. You can actually uh, get in close to each other. And then the last one is, if you resolve things, it actually brings out your best. It knocks off rough edges. It kind of shapes and molds you into better versions of yourself. Okay, now I've just gotten through describing uh, the way it's supposed to be. This is what's normal. Let me show you something. Um, people who are wolves in sheep's clothing, or this population that we're talking about, they don't have these abilities. They're lacking these abilities. And it's like they've got atrophied reason muscles. And so, one, way, one thing you can say about them is it kind of works like this. So in the awareness area, instead of saying, I see, uh, or I could be wrong, you could be right, let's talk, their stance is, uh, I'm right, you're wrong, end of discussion. They're not even willing to talk to you about it or entertain the idea that there could be something uh, wrong with me. And so it's an automatic starting point assumption that I'm the right one, you're the wrong one. And that's why the conversations don't tend to last very long with these people. The second one is it's the ability to acknowledge actual wrongness. Now, uh, normally you say, I see where I'm wrong. This person says, I only see where I'm right.
So they've got this truncated kind of um, self-awareness and they somehow filter out all the negative parts and only see the, the positive parts. Um, you ever heard people make comments about people who are deficient in that way? A lot of times they'll say, that guy is just clueless. He is just oblivious. And it's just frustrating when somebody <coughs> lacks the ability to see their own negatives. Um, you know what's supposed to happen to you and me when we observe a personal flaw? We're supposed to cringe. You know what these people do? They don't cringe, they shrug. And um, their stance is, uh, if I'm wrong, so what? And uh, they're not particularly bothered by their own personal wrongness. And so uh, if you're not bothered about it, you're not going to change it. They just kind of shrug it off. They're just unbothered by the observations of their own flaws. Um, these people tend to be empathy deficient. So the normal thing to do is to say, it bothers me when I hurt you. But what's their stance? It bothers me when you hurt me. And so that's why we use phrases like, it's all about him. The world revolves around her. her. It's, it's, all, it's all the self-focus. And then the last one is um, reliability. When I'm wrong, I'll change. Their stance is, I'll not change because I'm not wrong. So what's to change? There's nothing about me that really is, is necessary to change. So um, that's why I put it this way. That, that this, when, you, when you say somebody is unreasonable, they are unreasonable. They have neither the ability nor willingness to resolve things because they don't have the very qualities that would enable them to engage in relational problem solving. They're, they're lacking those abilities. Now, uh, if they can't resolve things in relationships, what they do is they opt for an alternative to problem solving. And you, do you know what you call this person's relational alternative to problem solving? Drama. Now, inter interesting, isn't it? That, that when we're talking about these people, we intuitively have come to use drama language to describe them. We might say, he's a, she's a drama queen. He's a drama king. You might say, man, it is a real soap opera over there in that office. Or, or you might say, you might talk about some guy's theatrics. <laughs> or you might say, man, he deserves an Oscar for that one. So we have intuitively come to use drama language to describe these people, but it kind of fits, doesn't it? Because what they, they do is they use, they use drama in relationships. Now here's how the drama works. Instead of resolving problems when they come up in the relationship, they opt for drama, and the way the drama works is, my role in our relationship is this. Your role in our relationship is that. As long as we both stay inside of our drama roles, we'll have a really good relationship. So relational success is contingent upon drama participation. That's just how it works. You've got to stay inside your role. Now, I'm, I'm giving you four here. Uh, don't get hung up on these four. There's probably 400. There, there's many. I think these are ones that we see a lot. I think we run into them quite a bit, and so they're, they're, they're very common. So I describe these are probably going to sound kind of familiar to you. But the first one is what I call the master drama. Now here's how that works. My role in our relationship is to be in charge. Your role in our relationship is to do what I need you to do and be who I need you to be. As long as we both stay inside of our drama roles, we'll have a good relationship. Any 
questions. <laughs> so it's this tight relational imperative and the success of our relationship is contingent upon both of us staying inside of those roles. That's just how it works. And we got a lot of language for that. We'll call these people um, uh, control freaks. Um, she has control issues. Everything has to be his way. Probably the most common phrase that we use all the time and we hear all the time is, it's his way or the highway. And so that's just how those relationships are structured. And by the way, uh, there's actually been some research done. Uh, that first one, the master drama, that's the one of these that's the most prevalent. You run into it a, a lot. And I think that's why we've got so much language about controllers. You know, they, they just have to be in control. Now, the second one uh, is the Messiah drama. Now, here's, this, here's the way this works. My role in our relationship, I'm sorry, the, oh, I, I got those mixed up. Well, let me do, I'll do the Messiah. Here's the way this one works. My role in our relationship is to do good things for you. Um, your role in our relationship is to be grateful for the help that I provide. Any questions? And so that's just how it's structured. And so everything kind of runs that way. So it's my job to kind of come in and do things for you that you're not able to do for yourself. And all I ask from you is that you lavish me with praise and gratitude for what I do for you. Um, next one is the uh, martyr drama. Here's how this one works. My role in our relationship is to be taken care of. Your role in our relationship is what? take care of me. And so it, as long as we both stay inside of our, our drama roles, we'll have a really good relationship. Um, now sometimes these people are called uh, the help-rejecting complainers. Um, they demand help, but when you give them help, they reject the help because if they were to accept the help, they can no longer be complainers. So there, there's more investment in complaining than there is in true uh, help receiving. Have you ever been in a relationship with somebody like this? It's like no matter what you do, it's not enough. It, it drops into a bottomless pit. Um, I, had a, I had a client that I met with one time, and, and uh, she really, uh, there was a lot that was going on with her, and I really felt bad for her. I really did. I felt bad for all that she had to go through. And she would come into my office and tell me about things that had gone wrong, and I would empathize with, with her plight. Um, but here's what I found out. As time went by, it became apparent to me that th those roles were very rigid. And there was one day in my office where she was telling me about something that had gone wrong, and I made a statement that wasn't quite an empathy statement. And she stops and looks at me and says, um, um, you've always been really good at empathy, but lately I've noticed not so much. Is everything okay? <laughs> Do you have something going on in your life that has you distracted? I mean, you don't have to tell me, that's probably a boundary thing, but are you okay? So she was now chiding me for not doing my job in the relationship. And this is when it became apparent to me, uh, oh, there's more here than originally met the eye. Giving her empathy was rigid. It was obligatory. I, I wasn't permitted to do anything else in that room but that one thing. 
So uh, that's the way the relationship was structured. That was rigid. That's how it worked. Now the last one is this. This one is I kind of made this one up, and I, I did it just because I see it so often. And here's the way this one works. Uh, my role in our relationship is to remain silent about anything that's important to discuss. Your role in our relationship is to pretend with me so that everything will be okay. And as long as we don't discuss difficult topics, we'll have a really good relationship. And that's just how it works. And I've had couples like this where, for instance, the guy can talk to anybody in the world about anything, but he will not discuss personal subjects. And if the wife brings that up, he goes silent and stays silent until she finally changes the subject. So that's a different, just kind of another one of those. Do those sound familiar to you? Have you run into those before? Now, if we were to spend some time, you could probably come up with some other dramas too because those aren't the only four. I just think these are, these are pretty common. Uh, so here's what we're saying. Normal, reasonable people have reasoned muscles where they can resolve things. People who are in this category, the wolves in sheep's clothing, they don't have these muscles. So not having the muscles, in order to make relationships work, they opt for an alternative to problem solving, which is drama. Um, how does it, let me ask you something, how does it feel to you when you get caught up in one of these dramas? Exhausting. Ex who said that? E exhausting. It just feels exhausting. It takes all of your energy to be around these people. Um, <laughs> you ever uh, uh, have, a, have an occasion where you're going to be with that person later in the day and you go, oh, Oh, I've got to be with them today. It just takes all of your strength. Here's my quick and dirty way of saying what drama participation will do to a person. It, uh, it drives you crazy. It makes you sick, and it wears you out. I just think it takes its toll on you in a number of adverse ways. Uh, that's why we call them crazy makers. If you're around, somehow they've got this ability to bend reality. <coughs> So that after a while you go, I'm not even sure where the lines are between uh, r reality and fantasy. It can make you start to question your own sanity. It can really, it, it can really um, mess with your brain. Um, it can make you sick. Um, can you ever relax around one of these people? Uh-uh. Now, if you can't relax, what does that do to your immune system? What kind of... Yeah, yeah, it starts to compromise your immune system. What happens to you then? Well, you, you start to become more susceptible to physical illnesses. So the phrase, you make me sick, can be literally true because it really takes its toll on you physically to be around these people. And like I said, it's just exhausting. So yeah, it really takes its toll on you. Now, let me, say, let me tell you this. Um, Again, I kind of made this up, but I think this is based upon observation. I've seen other people refer to this too. All the people in, in these drama categories are not the same. I think there's some people who uh, I call them level ones. And what that means is that if you stop participating in their dramas and you leave them inside their dramas all by themselves and they can't get you to rejoin them in the drama, there are some people who are actually capable of starting to grow in that frustrated place. They've got to start to reach for and look for an, op an alternate way to be. What's the alternate way to be? The use of those muscles. 
So there are some people that I think have the capability of exercising the atrophied reason muscles and grow the previously missing abilities. But it, but it doesn't happen because you give them a book on it. It usually happens because you've stopped participating in their dramas and they get frustrated. So that, that's possible. There are some people that are dormant, reasonable people uh, that will grow under conditions of drama non-participation. Now there's some people that if you stop participating in their dramas, they're not going to grow. They will stay the same no matter what you do. And what they're likely to do then is take their drama show to someone else who is a more willing participant. And so uh, with a level one, the person changes. With a level two, the relationship changes. And that relationship that you have with that person may cease to exist. Or it may become much more limited in some way. It changes the depth of the relationship. And then the third level, there are some people that if you stop participating in their dramas, they will get dangerous. Uh, they may try to hurt you. Or they may try to kill you. So we're talking here about mob bosses, gang leaders, uh, uh, terrorists, uh, domestic abusers. You know, they use threats of death and physical intimidation to get you back into your mode. So if you don't participate in their dramas, watch out because they really can be dangerous people. So, um, how do you handle wolves? So if you can't reason with them and you can't kill them, what do you do with them? And uh, I think that's a, that is a uh, question that stumps a lot of people because it, you, what do you do with them? What we like to do, this is what we're all prone to do, is maybe if I sit down and have a reasonable discussion with them. But the problem with that is they don't have reason capabilities. So those words are going to fall on deaf ears. Good luck with that. Uh, it's likely going to fail. So what do you do? So again, this is the part that we could spend the rest of the day talking about. But I think what, what it comes down to is we have to refuse drama non-participation. I'm, I'm sorry, refuse drama participation. Find ways to step outside of the drama and leave them in it all by themselves. Now, let me give you, I, I want to give you just a couple of examples of this. Um, and then, and then, then what I want us to do is talk some about this with your questions. Um, give you two examples. I've got a, one, one of my best friends is a pastor of a church. And he told me one time, he said, I have, I have probably run away more millionaires from my church than anybody I know. <laughs> and I said, really? He said, yeah, because over the years what will happen is there will be some guy who's very rich and powerful, and he comes in and he says, I want to donate money to the church. But what I want in exchange is this. And whatever that is is something that's very inconsistent with their church philosophy. So what he's had to say to people over the years is, well, thank you. That is really gracious of you, and I appreciate uh, your generosity. However, that's not something that we have decided we're going to do as a church. So if, you, if it's really important to you to give that to church, you're, you're probably going to need to find another church to give that to. So notice how he politely declined participation in the drama. Now, he's lost some millionaires, but he's, there's been a benefit from that. Here, here's another example. I've got a guy I saw years ago who was a um, business partner of another man who was widely known as a world-class jerk. <laughs> this man, his partner, had been married 10 times. 
believe it or not, I keep getting married, said 10 times. And um, uh, he was currently being sued by some of his adult children. <laughs> so people would come to my client and they would say, how do you work with him? He is just a despicable person. Well, my client told me, he said, you know, we're partners, and as such, we are so intertwined financially that there's, there's just virtually no way we can break the partnership without me taking a huge hit financially. I've talked to my accountant, there's no way for me to break this thing. So I've just figured out until I retire, I'm going to have to manage this. So my client said about once a week, uh, usually on Friday afternoon, his partner, the jerk, would walk into his office, slam the door, and chew him out for about 30 minutes. And he'd say, this is going wrong, that's going wrong, I want you to fire this secretary. He'd make all these demands, it was loud, and he, he said you could hear the, the yelling throughout the entire complex. My client said it would usually take him about 30 minutes to run out of steam. And then, then I would just look at him and I would say, you know, Bill, that's all real interesting. You want some gum? <laughs> and that was it. So the guy would bluster for a couple of more minutes. He'd leave the office, slam the door, and he'd say, oh, you're just impossible to deal with. And my client told me, he said, then I'd get on back to work. He said, I'd have a pretty productive rest of the day. I thought that was brilliant. Because you know what he just got through doing there? He disabled the drama. He kept that drama from having its desired effect. So I thought that, I thought that was brilliant. Here, but let me, let me throw this in. That was not really my client's biggest challenge. His biggest challenge was that after the jerk would leave, my client had family members that worked there in that place of business, and they would descend on his office, they would slam the door, and they would chew him out. And they would say, why do you let him talk to you that way? Boy, if it were me, I'd get up in his face, I'd say, you're not going to talk to me like that. And my client said, uh, look, he would tell his family, he'd say, look, I've been with this guy for 20 years. I've tried all those things. That never works. You know what would happen if I did that? We would be embroiled in some nasty conflict for the rest of the day. Nothing would get accomplished. And you know who would get blamed for that? Me. So I've just learned this is the best way to deal with it. I thought that was brilliant. I thought he was being wise. His family thought he was being weak. They thought he was being weak. And I, I think they really missed it. They never did get that. Um, okay. Now. Here's what happens when you can solve relational problems. Here, uh, when you're dealing with people who are wolves, you don't solve the problems, but what you can do is find ways not to participate in the drama. So under those circumstances, problems may not be resolved, but they might be restrained. Uh, it just keeps you from those problems from dominating your existence. Uh, it may not feel warm, but it can feel empowering. It's a little bit like wearing boots in a snake pit. You know, you're still around the snakes, but you're wearing boots so they can't get to you. Uh, relationships, they may not be close, but they can be limited, and you can still have connections with them under certain limited conditions. And even that can bring out your best because it uh, causes you to grow even though they don't. Okay, uh, I've taken about six hours worth of stuff and put it into about 30 minutes. So I'm sure this kind of raises some thoughts and questions for you. What what are those? Did you talk about the, the rescuer villain triangle drama a little bit? Because I'm, I'm sure that people have experienced 
experienced that yeah. where the switch is made? Yeah, um, there, there's something called, uh, in our field, it's called Cartman's Drama Triangle. And, and, and the way he put that together is you've got the victim, the rescuer, and the persecutor. And sometimes what people can do is they can switch roles. Um, let, let me tell you a great illustration of that. Did anybody ever watch uh, It's a Wonderful Life? You know, it, it, it's, a, it's a tradition in our household. We get up, we eat breakfast, we open presents, we watch It's a Wonderful Life. Well, if you're familiar with the, the storyline in that movie, uh, in the small little town of Bedford Falls, there was a, a, a family named the Baileys. Now, the Baileys were the good guys in the story. They ran this savings and loan institution in, in Bedford Falls. Uh, everybody in the town loved them. They were good people. They were generous people. The antagonist in the movie was this crusty old curmudgeon named Mr. Potter. Um, and, and it was Mr. Potter's need to be in control of every single aspect of Bedford Falls. He was a controller. But the one thing he couldn't get control of was that dead gum savings and loan institution run by the Baileys. So there's a scene in the movie where Mr. Potter uh, has found out that all George can think about every day when he gets up is how to make ends meet. He's financially strapped, uh, doesn't know how he's going to pay his bills. Mr. Potter calls George into his office and suddenly now, Mr. Potter has become George's financial rescuer. And he's shifted from a controller into the rescuing mode. And he offers to pay him what at that time was this big salary to run his operation, which would of course necessitate the liquidation of the Bailey Savings Alone. And he appealed to his materialism. He said, you can have the biggest house in town. Uh, you can buy your family whatever they want. And had George actually inked the deal, the Savings and Loan Institution would have ceased to exist and Mr. Potter would have been in control of the entire town. So he shifted from controller into rescuer to get back into the controlling mode once again. And maybe this is why we call him shifty. I don't know, you know, but, but yeah. And the rescuer is still a controller. It's yes. A, it's a form of control. It's a form of control, but it's disguised. Right. It's underneath. And he yeah. goes from being a mean controller to a oh, nice controller. Benevolent controller. Yeah. Yeah. And so you're exactly right. And and it almost worked. And if you remember if you remember that scene in that movie, uh, he offers this to George and George is so enamored with the with the salary offer that he takes it. And he reaches across the desk to shake Mr. Potter's hand, but while he's shaking his hand, it dawns on him. He's, he's just been scammed. <coughs> and, he, and he pulls his hand back and wipes it off like he's just reached into a toilet. So, and and then, then he says that little thing to Mr. Potter about, uh, you sit around here and you think the whole world revolves around you and your money. Well, it doesn't. In the whole vast configuration of things, I'd say you're nothing but a scurvy little spider. <laughs> so notice, notice the term of derision. But, uh, but yeah, that, that's, they, they could shift. Right? Yeah. I have questions about um, how to deal with um, like a Christian brother or sister who isn't one of these uh, wolf <laughs> positions. Yeah. And, uh, See, Christians don't do this. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, yeah, no, uh-uh. But like I'm in a situation. You mean just hypothetically? With, <laughs> if it were, yeah. I'm in a very hypothetical situation. Yeah. And my, I've been like not participating in drama, but then yeah. that comes with feeling of guilt, like, am I not being a nice Christian by right. giving them what they 
Right. Oh, I know. I know. And a lot of times they can exploit the um, exploit your theology. And uh, here's the thing: the Bible says a whole lot about being kind to people, being loving to people, and all those things. But it also says, uh, watch out for wolves in sheep's clothing. Watch out for false teachers. Um, don't keep company with fools. And that kind of thing. So which, which scriptures are you going to pay attention to? And so what, you're, what you end up having to do is to use wisdom. You know, if there's an overriding principle, use wisdom. And you can't use these principles with people that don't want to have anything to do with them, so you have to use other principles, which sometimes is distancing. But you're, but you're right, they're very good at exploiting what they know are your commitments. And uh, very good at detecting what your vulnerability is. Yes. And I know we could talk a long time about yeah. that, but they'll yeah. pick up on it oh, yeah. and zero in on it yeah. very quickly. And you start feeling guilty about something, you're looking, I'm not really feeling. That's one of the signals a lot of times. Is, wait, 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 what's going on here? What, what's going on here? Then you consult with somebody else. Uh-huh. Yeah. Once you've had a lot of practice doing that, pick up on it early. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and you sense it sometimes before it displays itself. Man, if you've ever been around somebody, you just kind of have a little bit of a, of a, she, you know, there's something that kind of comes up inside your, you have a tick in your gut, you know, that sort of thing. Pay attention to that. Now, don't run with that either, but that may be telling you something. Yeah. So, if I don't participate in the drama, sometimes that person becomes self-aware and may just decide to, um, to change. I haven't. In my life, I haven't been witness to that too much. Yeah. Um, they keep being crazy. And it could be me being crazy. Um, but where are some other events that can change a person around? It, it can be consequences or? It can be. Yeah, that they've been living their lives, all the, their whole life, trying to get people um, to perform their obligatory roles. And sometimes they just run out of steam and they can't do that anymore. Or maybe circumstances that occur that raises their level of awareness about that. So again, I'm, I want to always be careful not to rigidly place somebody into a box from which they are never allowed to escape. Because sometimes people can actually start to grow later, and I didn't see it happen at the time. So I want to always allow for that possibility. And there's been times where I've, I've been convinced that somebody is this way, and I find out they're different later on. So I think we have to be careful about that. But yeah. Do you have any uh, tips that you might even use in your own life if you see yourself slipping into one of these ways? Again, you're speaking hypothetically. <laughs> and, uh, but, well, now, we all, there are some times where I'm in control. But it's, it's okay. I mean, it, it's appropriate for that setting. There are times when I'm on the receiving end of somebody's help, and, and it's perfectly appropriate to do that. There may be times where I'm uh, rescuing somebody because it's appropriate to that setting. I think what we're saying is, uh, if you go back to these roles uh, that we were looking at, um, they're, they're rigid. And a lot of times what you see is somebody doesn't have the ability to kind of shift around appropriately, but they are, it's like they're rigidly confined to that one way to be. 
and they just be that everywhere they go. And so somehow everything is sort of made to fit inside of that. Greg Lester, yeah. the expert in yeah. this area, he, I think it's he that says, it's as if they have in their toolbox one single tool, yeah. a hammer. And every problem they encounter, they can only pull out this hammer. And, and if you're a nail, then yeah. look out. But that, they don't have this variety of tools that we use, use the right yeah. tool for the right job. They don't have that. All yeah. they have is being a control. That's it. Yeah. And, and, they, and they may shift roles in order to get back into control, you know, so they may appear this way. But I, but I think if you find yourself sometimes being like one of these, and you, say, you see yourself doing a lot of these, what you call that is normal, you know, because we all do that, and, and it's appropriate to do so. Yeah? What causes someone to be so unself-aware, I guess? I mean, like, what are, is it childhood things? Is it, is it a mental disorder? I mean, like, yeah. Um, um, I say that my ex-husband, the counselor thought he had Asperger's, yeah. and, and really, yeah. a lot of these are. Yeah. And and I was wondering if it's a lot of times people are in, you yeah. know, a spectrum that you don't know, or it, it, it can be. could be more mm -hmm. childhood yeah. that you see. Yeah. I, I think it's a wonderful question, and I really wish there was a one-size-fits-all answer to that question, but, but it may vary according to any individual. Um, it's, it's long been thought that this is always the result of um, nurturing deficiencies as the person was growing up, and it, that, that is a cause for some people, but there are other people that had wonderful families, and they still didn't develop those things, and, it, and there may be some other explanation for it. So it's a wonderful question. I wish I had a wonderful answer, but it, but it's sort of a, uh, it, it just depends. It depends on all the factors that come into play for that individual. But, I, I would yeah. love for us to be able to go on. You yeah. know it would. Yeah. We talk about this all day. Yeah. But uh, we're out of time, so we need to wrap it up. Um, now, Alan won't say this, but I'll say it. He has a, a book that will sum up a lot of this. And 